2: See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.
1: This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash peter and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide.
0: Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. Lots to unwrap this week, starting with one of America's master storytellers. He's traveled more than 4 million miles, and for 25 years, he reported America's story on the Today Show. I'll be speaking with Bob Dotson, who's still traveling and telling stories, including a remarkable tale about what was hidden in an attic in an Oklahoma firehouse. First up, Bob Dotson.
1: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. As an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text Wondery Pod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text Wondery Pod to
0: 500-500. I'm honored to be joined by my, my next guest. You know him because for 25 years... He was the host of The American Story on The Today Show. I happened to be at The Today Show during a number of those years and got a chance to see what he did and hear what he did and learn from what he did, a New York Times bestseller. He's traveled. He'll he'll duke it out with me to see who's traveled more, but he's traveled at least 4 million miles in pursuit of that American story. Please welcome Bob Dotson. How are you, sir?
3: Hey, Peter, how are you? I think most of those 4 million miles I walked, (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I'm sorry, sir. There are no frequent walking miles that I'm aware of, but those are still miles. Absolutely. Right. right. You, well, know, you know,
3: Peter, I, go ahead. Ask your question. No, let's go ahead. Well, I just wanted to say that to, to kind of give people a little reference. Um, years ago, when I was a very young reporter... I wondered what seemingly ordinary people did between hurricanes and revolutions and fires and losing their dog down down a well, you know, because my grandfather, when I was a kid, said, you know, wisdom doesn't always wear a suit. Maybe you ought to go out and talk to some folks and see the problems that they've already solved so you don't have to do it over and over again. So I pretty much dedicated my life not to doing feature stories, funny, ha end of show kind of stories but investigative reporting on seemingly ordinary people who had done something significant that changed our country.
0: You know, it's it's interesting you mention that because for many many years I was the West Coast correspondent for Newsweek and I had the exact same impression about where the you know where the ingenuity was and and of course I was working for a magazine that was based right here in New York so I was west of the Hudson and in those days you know it was so new york-centric in terms of how media was being covered that being west of the hudson was not an advantage to them it was definitely an advantage to me in terms of the stories i found and the stories i got to tell i'm sure that also applied to you
3: well i would go to some place with a story in mind but i'd be sitting in a coffee shop say in some small town and someone would say you know you ought to go see james crudup because he's good with his hands and he's he's restoring an old 1946 ford and that's exactly the year you were born So obviously we'd wander over and talk to him and turned out he had quite a bit more to tell because he was a truck driver after the Korean war. He gets to Detroit, the company he works for bellies up. He's out of a job. So he takes a job as a janitor at the university of Michigan med school. And he watches the surgical students working on mice and trying to become surgeons. And he realized that all their tools were too big. So this 44-year-old man, a truck driver, goes home to his garage, tinkers around, and comes back, and he's one of the first people in the world to come up with microsurgery tools. (laughs) And if you graduate this spring from the University or Michigan University Med School, the dean will put your name on a plaque with James Crudup's face, and he never graduated high school. (laughs) And the dean will tell you he's the he's the finest. Teacher we ever had because he could explain a serious problem in you know, like valves and 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 tubes, just like it would be talking about his old
0: truck. Exactly. And you know, it's it, I love the idea that you give things perspective and context. My grandfather was one of the original star reporters for William Randolph Hearst and the old LA examiner. And wow. before my and before my grandmother passed away, she said, I want to give you something. And she gave me all of his papers. She gave me everything he'd ever written that was either published or that he had in notes. And I'm still going through it, Bob. And what, What? I mean, stories that you can't make up that he did, uh, that you learn from that. It it, it it talks about the human condition in ways that we sometimes just take things for granted. And it's not that way at all.
3: Well, speaking of your grandfather, my grandfather used to take me out on the front porch after dinner and he'd say, did I ever tell you about my honeymoon? <laughs> and I'm eight years old, right? And I go, no, but, you know, I'm fascinated. And he said, well, my, your grandma and I went to Salt Lake City. And even at eight, I wondered why you'd go to Salt Lake City on a honeymoon. And he said, well, I had a free ticket. I'd done some work on the Union Pacific and they gave me a free ticket. So off we went. Then he tells me they're sitting in the dining car. And the conductor wobbles up and says, are you Paul Bailey, my mom's dad? And he said, yeah. And he says, well, I'm your oldest brother you've never met. (laughs) So I have a penny postcard sent from that honeymoon back to the mom. And it shows my grandmother and grandfather floating on their backs in the Great Salt Lake with the brother, who's probably taken a couple of days off the train, with a big red circle around the brother. And all it says on the postcard, Probably the first tweet of the century was, Ma, we found Vance more later. (laughs) Well, you know, if you grow up around somebody like that, who's not just telling you he joined the Rotary Club and worked for Newsweek for two years. I mean, but actually tells you what they did while they were there. That will set you on the path for life.
0: Exactly. Now, in all those 25 years that you did the American story, is there one story that eluded you? Is there one story you just couldn't get?
3: Oh, yeah, there was one. It was a guy that uh, he was kind of like one of the very first environmentalists. And he grew up in one of those smelter camps outside uh, in Utah, uh, outside I believe it was pretty close to Salt Lake City. But uh, he would sneak over the fence at night and carry trees, saplings, and climb up to the side of the mountain and plant the trees. He did this for almost 20 years without ever being noticed. And then eventually, some of the people who work there, I mean, it, it, it seems so strange today because we talk about the environment and climate change so much. But in those days, uh, it was kind of like, you, you're afraid you'll get thrown out of town because he was the son of, a, of a, a man and a woman who both worked at the smelter camp. So when I showed up, you know, and I thought I had it all lined up to do, and I'm standing out there and we spent all the money to fly out there. And he said, well, he says, I'm just not at that important And I, you know, and I just don't think I need to do a story. But the good news was that three years later, they had hired him as the head of environmental services (laughs) at this big smelter camp. And I came out and did the story because the PR people said, yeah, you'll do it now. So but I mean, I was I was floored. I thought, my gosh, that's the end of my because my grandmother, for instance, she was she was a little uh, nonplussed by the fact that I got into journalism. She thought I would get a real job, you know. And so, when I first, she first, first was able to see something and I did on the Today Show, I called her up and I said, Did you see it? Well, yeah. And I said, Well, what'd you think? And there was a long pause and she said, Bobby, you ought to learn a trade. They <laughs> well, are listen, not my- going to keep paying you.
0: <laughs> well, my mother was someone who watched me on the Today Show, but she was incapable of giving a compliment without a comma. And what I mean by that is she would, she would, I, I, she'd call me after the show and said, I said, well, how, how'd I do? She said, well, you did great. Here comes the comma. You did great, but uh, I didn't like your shirt. <laughs> so you you, you you could never get, you could never get a hundred percent buy-in here on that. Right, But right. But, you know, part of the process of storytelling is actually following the story and, and, and taking it wherever it takes you. Uh, first, you got to find it. One of the things I want to talk to you about is a discovery that you made about an old cameraman, I believe it was in Oklahoma, uh, back in 1905, uh, that that he did shoot, I mean, all of his pictures from 1905 to 1945, and what was in that footage. Bob, I was fascinated by a story you, you just posted just the other day about, I think it was an NBC cameraman back in Oklahoma City. Who, who shot stuff between 1905 and 1945, and nobody had seen it until you saw it.
3: Well, I was a young reporter, and there was a, a fire station in Stillwater, Oklahoma, where Oklahoma State University is. It was being torn down. And the fire chief called me up, because I'd done a story on him a couple of days before. And he said, we found something in the attic. Would you come and take a look? So I went there, and I looked at it, and it was all these old reels of film and it was nitrate based film which means it's highly explosive not like the more modern film right so we looked at it and we figured out that it had been stashed there by an early day path a newsreel photographer who started working in 1904 in oklahoma and in back in those days they would have like a a movie, and then before that, they'd have like a newsreel, which would be like the evening news, right? So this guy shot stuff all around Oklahoma, but the stuff that was stored in the old fire station—and by the way, we figured that it was stored there since it was highly explosive, because we figured if it blew up, you know, they would have the hoses and put it out. <laughs> but it, yeah. so, at any rate, we took a look at it. We sent it all out to Hollywood. We got a little money from the historical society, from the television stations, and the universities, and whatever. And we came back with all this treasure trove of, of footage. Now, it wasn't what you thought, because the stuff he could sell to New York, he sent to New York. But back in 1920, say for instance, the kind of stuff you would sell out of Oklahoma would be video of uh, oil wells or women in you know beauty contests and Indians with uh, you know feathers in their head. Well, this is what Benny Kent shot. He shot women in three-piece suits running businesses. The same with Native Americans. He went to the 28 all-African-American towns in Oklahoma that had been settled by former slaves who went west. And even though he couldn't sell it, he shot it anyway because he was curious and he was a storyteller. So he saved that up in the attic of the fire department. Eventually, I ended up using that for a number of documentaries, including one which is in the Smithsonian called Through the Looking Glass Darkly, because he had footage of black cowboys and black Native Americans. They were all interacting. In fact, you can win a bar bet, folks, if you, if you go on a vacation and you ask, what's the most diverse state in the Union? Most of your friends will say California or New York or something like that. But it's not. It's Oklahoma. And the reason for that is that they had 11 free land runs between 1889 and about two years before statehood in 1907. And so if you couldn't afford a, a home, you know, in Nebraska, you lined up, they fired off a shot, you went in and you staked it out. Now, in addition to that, they had 131 native tribes who they had pushed in to Oklahoma Territory, and in those days they called it Indian Territory. So if you go and look at old maps of Oklahoma today, there'll be like new Cologne, new Berlin, Rio de Janeiro, new, you know, and these. So they all talk like this today, but they came from all over the world to get free land. And that's what just fascinated me. So I figured if what Benny Kent did to save the American story that he was shooting and shot stuff about people who were overlooked then maybe I ought to do that. Well, over the years, every time NBC had to throw out footage because we didn't have enough space, I said, well, just throw it to me. I didn't own it, still don't own it, but I kept it in my garage and then in my basement, and then when I moved to New York, I you know, had up to three different warehouses with this stuff, which I maintained for 30 years. Well, during the pandemic, we transferred all of that footage to 21st century technology. And then put it on a webpage called myamericanstories.com, which you can take a look at for free. Because th- these, this isn't the stuff I covered like hurricanes or, or that kind of stuff. This is all stories about seemingly ordinary people who had significantly changed our country.
0: Wow. I mean, that, that's a big one. How long did it take you to do the transfer?
3: Uh, oh, Jesus. <laughs> the hardest part, it's about a year. Uh, but and I mean year with me doing nothing because I'm you know semi-retired but the hardest part was to find somebody that could take seven or eight different archaic technologies and run the tapes or the film right so I found a guy in Oklahoma because that's where we, we kept all this stuff that uh, was down at the University of Oklahoma and it turns out that his hobby was restoring old video uh, machines, because he was a chief engineer at one time at one of the television stations. So I made him my archivist, and so the two of us would talk back and forth on Zoom and whatever. And he'd say, "Look what I found." It was in a very big warehouse, you know. <laughs> and, and and then it kind of caught on because there was a fellow out in Portland, Oregon, who who had machines of, the, of the, the the oldest video machines, which were two inches wide, by the way, the tape. And and he had sure, a cute
0: name I, for. Sure, I remember. It.
3: Yeah, but he had a cute name for his hobby. He called it high-def
4: two-inch tape.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My thanks to Bob. I've always been fascinated about the power of airline frequent flyer programs and the seductive lure of miles. But there are few places where that power is more intensely displayed than when relationships end. Marriages are dissolved, and there's a fight between husbands and wives, or partners, over assets. Who gets the kids? Who gets the house? The pets? And then, who gets the mileage? Sometimes it gets even crazier, as with the story of Robert De Niro and the missing 7 million Delta Sky miles. Gary Leff, who's the founder of ViewFromTheWing.com, has the story. joining me now one of my faves he writes the best column ever called viewfromthewing.com there's not a day that goes by that i don't see something that he writes going oh my god i should have thought of that or how did he get that before i got that uh, i'm telling you and and you know i'm going to i'm going to set the scene here uh, i'm going to tell you a story and here's the story it goes back about 35 years if i remember correctly there was a professor at stanford And he was a model professor, a father, a husband, had two kids, was a Little League coach when he wasn't teaching. And uh, one small detail, he neglected to tell his wife. He was also married at the same time to a woman in Oregon, where he was a husband, father, parent, and little, Little League coach as well. So he was on planes a lot. And one day, at the age of 51, he drops dead. And at his funeral, uh, that's when the, the first wife discovers there's an entire other wife with an entire set of kids and another t- an entire different lifestyle. And the media picks up on this, and the press asks the first wife, oh, my God, this is so terrible. You never knew. What's your reaction to this? And she says, I just want his mileage. Well, <laughs> that gives you the power of the frequent flyer programs And in many divorce cases, you know they're not just fighting over custody of the kids. They're not just fighting over custody of the pet or the real estate assets or somebody's favorite painting. The one thing that goes right down to the wire, it's mano a mano between the lawyers is who gets custody of the mileage. Well, an interesting story that my next guest just did, and by the way, his name is Gary Leff and the name of his website is viewfromthewing.com. Interesting story about... Mileage, but told through an entire different lens. Yes, there's another court case involved, but this one involves Robert De Niro and 7 million Delta Sky miles. Gary Leff, please tell the story.
4: So, Robert De Niro is suing his former assistant turned vice president of production and finance. Claiming misappropriating company funds, including using the uh, corporate credit card for personal trips, really nice meals out, um, oddly including at Nobu that De Niro owns a piece of, um, but stays at uh, some you know, top hotels, but also stealing 7 million miles. Now, according to the suit, apparently these were 7 million Delta Sky miles, although I'm actually a little bit skeptical because every time I've ever uh, dealt with lawyers and been an expert witness in, you know, in uh, cases around frequent flyer miles, um, the lawyers never know what they're talking about. Um, but what's claimed is that uh, the assistant took 3 million miles for personal use and then transferred 4.5 million into her own account. And that's what makes me skeptical that we're talking about Delta miles actually here, because Delta only lets you transfer 150,000 miles per year out of an account. She worked for him since 2008, and um, you know this would take 30 years to transfer <laughs> out as many as supposedly were. So my guess is we're actually talking about American Express membership rewards points, and that uh three million were used to book tickets directly and that perhaps four and a half million were transferred to her delta sky miles uh, account uh now either way the interesting thing is that de niro is valuing these miles at 4.3 cents apiece he claims that the seven million miles are worth three hundred thousand dollars now if these are sky miles that's exaggerating by about a factor of four um but i mean there's even if they were american express points an american express is sold points at two and a half cents a piece so claiming that they're worth over four is uh the height of exaggeration like i say lawyers don't know much about miles or what miles are worth
0: so based on that valuation either way it certainly got everybody's attention
4: uh, you know what? 7 million miles are a lot of miles. Uh, yeah, the, and, you know, in many programs, we used to think about you know, 25,000 miles for a domestic uh, ticket, right? So a million miles would get you 40 round trips, and this is 7 million. Uh, now, I, I think that these days, 7 million Delta Sky miles gets you from, you know, Atlanta to Los Angeles one way. But it's still uh, <laughs> it's still a lot of miles.
0: Yeah, there's one thing you know. If if I were brought into that trial as an expert witness, I'd say, yeah, but first of all, I want to know not that she transferred the miles. I want to know how the hell did she redeem them? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, Delta doesn't make it easy to redeem miles. I have to tell you.
4: Well, they they do. It just takes seven million if you want to redeem. That's the problem. <laughs> uh, maybe my point why, exactly. Maybe that's. What- Maybe that's why De Niro is, is mad. Ready <laughs> to lose all seven million.
0: Exactly. Well listen, let's trans let's let's segue from that into a story on mileage itself because as you know, you and I both reported this. During the pandemic, the airlines were trying to raise capital as much as they could, and they valued get back to the valuation again, they valued their frequent flyer programs as, as high as thirty billion dollars, and they were able to generate They basically mortgaged American Delta and United, mortgaged their programs for between six and ten billion dollars each, which proves that the, the frequent flyer programs actually make more money than the airlines themselves. So that's a very interesting, you know, revelation. But it gets interesting because now they've got this debt, they've got to basically service this debt. Will 2022 be the year that the airlines seriously devalue miles?
4: You know, I don't think 2022 is when miles are going to be uniquely devalued. Uh, So to to your point, frequent flyer programs have been a huge driver of revenue to airlines. The way that I often put this out is that at most companies, marketing is an expense line. For the airlines, it's actually a profit center. And they sell miles to the banks. They sell miles to other partners who use them to convince you to use their products. And they, you know, print these miles for, uh, for and take in more than it cost them to to redeem them. And, of course, they're in total control of the cost of redemption and how you can use their points. And we've seen devaluations during the pandemic. Uh, you know, Southwest across the board, And you just spend their points um, based on the cost of a ticket, and each point became worth about 6% less uh, when nobody was looking. Uh, Delta raised the number of points it takes to redeem on partners, uh, on their partner airlines, twice during the pandemic. And United did that twice too. And these are cases where those two airlines have to pay their partners for the awards. They wanted to hold on to the cash, not, not pay partners. And so we've seen some devaluation, but it hasn't been wholesale. And American Airlines has said, at least to me, uh, that they do not plan to uh, devalue their miles in 2022. Uh, so I don't think it's and that's about to happen now. As there's you know, massive amounts of leisure demand uh, to a lot of places, at least places that are open, um, you know, it becomes difficult to use your miles. Um, but it's easy to use it to some other places. Right? It's you know you, to use your miles and get the best value. You want to uh, go to where there are plenty of flights and fewer passengers, because then there are empty seats that the airline can make available that they're not otherwise going to sell for cash. So it's going where other people aren't.
0: And then, of course, during Uh, the pandemic, the opportunities there are great if you you plan properly and look 330 days out. You know, there was a time in the not-too-distant past where if I flew 2,400 miles from New York to Los Angeles, even on a discounted ticket the least amount of miles I would earn would be 2,400 miles. Well, those days are gone. They've gone to a fare-based system. So it's not how far you fly or how much you fly, it's how much you spend. And if I flew on that same discount ticket today from New York to L.A., I would get a fraction of those 2,400 miles. In fact, one airline, Delta, said if I flew on their cheapest ticket, the basic economy ticket, I'd get no miles. So we're looking at a completely different approach to mileage, which, as Gary said in the last segment, the airline's are free to do under deregulation. No one can tell them how to manage their programs. The only thing I can tell you, and I think Gary would echo this, is the airlines can change the rules at any time for whatever reason. So holding on to your miles, you know, listen, I have trouble trusting the airlines as airlines, why would I trust them as banks? Uh, You might want to be strategic here and look 330 days out and look for availability because the airlines are changing also the way you earn miles right? Gary, you talk about what's going on in American.
4: Well, so there's two kinds of miles, really. There's the miles that you earn that you then spend on a free trip, and then there's the points you earn that count towards your elite status, frequent travelers who get better treatment, upgrades, uh, extra legroom coach seats, and those sorts of things. And American is is now beginning to recognize elite Flyers, not just on how much they travel, but on how much they spend on the credit card, how much they purchase through the online shopping portal uh, when they credit their rental cars to American Advantage, uh, and any number of other activities. And this really recognizes that what's profitable to American Airlines is somebody who engages with them in a variety of different ways, mostly through the mileage program. The least A a profitable thing that you can do with an airline is actually fly from one city to another, and that's why you know American, uh, to a non-elite member, awards five redeemable frequent flyer uh, miles per uh, dollar spent, uh, and earns five points towards elite status uh, on those uh, tickets. But you can earn, you know, 40 miles per dollar sending flowers through FTD at, at times. Uh, you can earn, uh, you know, 25 and 20 miles often through uh, buying something on their shopping portal. You earn things when you buy at Best Buy if you start at that shopping portal or, or Target.com or Wine.com. And, you know, those activities have in the buying miles from American, uh, and that is much higher margin activity. They want to really encourage people to do things like spend money on their co-brand credit card. City and Barclays, because you're going to earn an elite mile per dollar spent on those credit cards, uh, just like you're earning uh, your redeemable miles. And so the passengers they want to be giving upgrades to are the ones that do those more profitable activities.
0: Okay. You know what? I need a system. I need an app. I know there's an app that can track this for me because there's not a day that I don't get at least three offers for a credit card that's somehow you know affiliated with a mileage program or with points that can be redeemed.
4: You know, and I think the, the here's the thing. It fi- this finally makes it attractive to use an American Airlines credit card because if you care about their status, it helps you with that. Uh, for using points towards free travel, I much prefer the cards that are issued by the banks whose points. Transfer to a variety of different frequent flyer programs. You get to put the points where you want them when you know where you're going to travel and who has the availability that you want. That flexibility is you know, much more valuable normally than crediting those miles off a credit card to uh, a single airline program. I mean, if, even if you want Delta Sky miles, you can earn more Delta Sky miles with a, an American Express membership rewards card, whose points transfer to Delta and often earn at a faster rate uh, or transfer to any number of other places. So normally the airline credit card has sort of been surpassed in value to the consumer by these bank cards. Um, And this is an interesting way of fighting back that makes uh, spend on an American Airlines credit card actually more interesting because it gets you to gold, platinum, even executive platinum uh, status in a way that it didn't used to.
0: And what about the cashback cards? Do they play into this?
4: Well, you know, I think it's a really good uh, thing when you think about, say, a two percent cash back card that you know is easily available. City Double Cash, no annual fee uh, card as a ben- as a baseline. If you're not willing to spend two cents to buy a frequent flyer mile, which, frankly, you shouldn't be, um, then you should not be earning one mile per dollar on an airline uh, credit card, because you're buying that mile for two cents. The opportunity cost is that cash back. And, frankly, for people who are only looking to spend your miles for domestic travel in economy, you know, maybe a trip to Florida, right, you're going to be better off getting cash, spending the cash on the ticket that you want, not worrying about a. Availability, or doing other things with the cash, and you know, cash can earn a rate of return. Uh, miles usually get less valuable, although these days with inflation, maybe cash gets less valuable too. But uh, <laughs> but the ability to earn that rate of return is you know is, is something that the airlines don't generally offer. So I think that, you know, that the, that the use case for the airline credit card is uh, where it helps towards status, which in American it does now more than the other airlines. Um, but where if you want international business class travel, um, you know, airline miles and especially bank points that transfer to a bunch of different airlines uh, are what's going to get you that for the most value.
0: We all remember that Leonardo de movie, right? Catch me if you can, uh, where he impersonated a Pan Am pilot. Well, this is a sort of an outgrowth of that, and uh, it involved the United Airlines flight attendant. Gary, tell me what happened.
4: So there was a, a Brazilian man named uh, Ricardo Guedes, who was born in 1972, and he really wanted to come to the U.S., and he uh, took on the name William Erickson Ladd, who was uh, somebody born in 1974 and sadly Uh, who had died in a car accident four years later. He obtained a U.S. passport under the name uh, William Ladd, shortened it to Eric Ladd, and he became a United Airlines flight attendant where he worked for 23 years for the airline. He had to get a passport, renew it several times. Uh, He even used his uh, citizenship to obtain a residency permit for his uh, legal partner to come to the U.S. Now, I... Think that if you are living under an assumed name, it's probably not ideal to be applying to for additional identity documents to the government to be bringing somebody into the country uh, that you were sponsoring. just coming into contact with the government a lot. And if you're a flight attendant, you do that. You go through known crew member lanes at the airport. You have to get vetted for security. And so when he went to have his passport renewed in 2020, uh, it triggered a fraud alert. And investigators went and tracked down his real identity. They went to question the mother of the real Eric Ladd, which had to have been a really difficult conversation to hear that the child that she lost uh, when he was four uh, was somehow out there working for United Airlines. Well, they um, Eric Ladd uh, had had to provide his fingerprints to become a flight attendant. They were able to uh, use those fingerprints to track him down. Uh, again, coming into contact with the government when you're really trying to avoid them is not a good idea. They probably thought after 23 years that everything was safe, but it finally caught up with him. And it caught up with him in Houston. He was going to be starting a trip uh, with United, and they waited, federal agents waited at the airport at the known crew member checkpoint. And since he went through that checkpoint and he gained it using a false identity, those were even additional charges on top of the immigration-related ones. So, you know, in the case of, you know, Frank Agnell in Catch Me If You Can, I mean, he was a it was a Pan Am pilot. He was, you know, that's sort of hard because you need to know a little bit of piloting, right? It's easier to impersonate a flight attendant. Uh, but, um, you know, after a couple of decades, he certainly knew that drill, but, you know, coming into government uh, checks eventually uh, got him busted.
0: Wow. Friendly skies. And then there's even another United Airlines story, isn't there?
4: Oh, my. So there is there was another United Airlines flight attendant who became something of a sensation on TikTok, uh, creating videos that were You know, flight attendant sort of secrets, the things that you don't see behind the scenes, recommendations for how to improve your travel. And she was pretty popular and she was, you know, would be linked to or commented on by United's social media presence. So someone at United certainly knew she was doing it. Well, somebody ratted her out that wasn't too happy, anonymously complained about it. And it turns out in some of her videos, she had been wearing United uh, Airlines uniform, which is against their rules. And so she was forced to uh, resign uh, from the airline over her TikTok. Um, so, you know, she's now apparently out looking for new airline jobs, loses her seniority, has deleted some of those videos. But, you know, frankly, a lot of them are, are, are good. I don't uh, uh, pretend to really understand TikTok, but um, tens of millions <laughs> of people watch these things. Um, and I suspect that if she were, you know, savvy, she could earn more online than uh, uh, than working uh, United Flights.
0: Well, she's about to find that out.
4: Yeah, you know, it's it's one of these things where... You know, it's important to know your employer's social media rules and document any permission that you might have uh, to be doing what you're doing online, but know that anything that you say online may get you, uh, may, may have consequences, whether it's with your employer or canceling or any of these sorts of things. The, you know, the, the personal and the professional boundaries aren't always clear. And even if uh, you're, most people do something that's against uh, your employer's rules, uh, that may work for a while until it doesn't, just like uh, Living under an Assume may. It may work for 23 years until yeah. it doesn't.
0: Well, I've got a surprise for you, Gary. I know this is radio, but I'm actually wearing a United Airlines uniform right this minute. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
4: but this is radio, so it won't get you fired from the airline.
0: My thanks to Gary. I like to think of myself as a global road warrior. I pride myself on having been to 150 countries in the world. Impressive, right? Well, I'm not even close to to Jessica Nabongo, who holds the title of the first black woman to travel to all 195 countries in the world. And she's got quite a few stories to tell about those journeys, not to mention a few surprises along the way. My next guest, I'm happy to welcome her back to the show, but let me give you a little bit of background. I think I travel a lot. I travel about 420,000 miles a year. Uh, I've been to 152 countries. Uh, but who's counting? Like, okay, I counted. But my next guest did a bigger, bitter, <laughs> bigger and better count. In fact, she's the founder and CEO of JetBlack and the first black woman to travel to every single country in the world. And in case you're noticing that's or wondering, it's 195 of them if you add some territories. Her name? Jessica Nabongo, welcome back, Jessica.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And by the way, she's got a new book coming out this June, and I love the yes. title. I know I got. I love the title, "The Catch Me If You Can." One woman bringing yes. to every country in the world, and you know what? You've done it, and you've done it. And what's crazy about this is you've done it against some pretty serious challenges, not the least of which is what we've gone through for the last two years, right?
2: Well, actually, luckily, I finished in October of 2019.
0: Oh, boy. Talk so. about timing. Talk about timing.
2: <laughs> Super lucky. So I finished just in time. So luckily, you I my, that journey wasn't um, hindered by our current state of affairs.
0: So... 195 countries, and that's really 193 countries by the UN count, plus two non-member states, the Holy See, of course, the Vatican and the Palestinian territories. Uh, did you have a a game plan here, or were you, were you just going to go wherever you could get to at any particular time?
2: Yeah, you know, because originally when I started traveling, it wasn't to specifically go to every country in the world, but when I was at country number 60, and I decided that I wanted to do every country in the world in a specific amount of time. Then I became more strategic about it. Um, you know, so there were some challenges like visas didn't come on time. So, like I, I remember the last five countries I had. One was in South America. One was in two were in Africa. One was in the Middle East. Um, so you know, it was challenging having to do a lot of like weird bouncing around towards the end. Um, really long flights. But uh, for the most part, the last 135,
0: they were strategic. I I love the way you said it, the last 135. (laughs) (laughs) But, okay, now here's a question that I know I can ask this question based on my own experience. How many passports did you go through? Because in the old days, even if you got the 58-pager, if you ran out of pages, you could go to any U.S. consulate and they'd add pages. They don't do that anymore. They don't do that anymore. So.
2: so annoying.
0: <laughs> I know. So so by the time this is all over, how many passports did you go through?
2: Well, it's interesting because I literally just went and got, I applied for a new passport yesterday, which I'll be picking up tomorrow for a trip on Sunday. But um, so in the last six years, if I just look at that, so um, since 2016, I started this 135 in earnest in 2017. I went through two double books like the the large book two US double books and um one Ugandan single book.
0: And I must tell you because you're Ugandan American so you're carrying two passports, right?
2: Yeah, and I but I I had two American passports so I was allowed to get one concurrent one which was valid for 4 years.
0: And by the way, people don't know this, I have the exact same thing. I have two passports because I go to I go between countries that don't like each other. And it also <laughs> okay. allows me and it also allows me to keep one in, in, in the passport office to get a visa when I need it and still travel. Exactly. Yeah. You know the exactly. deal. Exactly. Yep. So <laughs> when when you're going through and the other thing about passports while I got you on the phone, let's at, let's talk about this, is I'm noticing now more and more countries are not even stamping your passport. I I, I miss that. I want the stamp on the passport. I love it. It's it's art.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's it's so much a part of the archive.
0: It is. I mean, I go back and look at my old passports, and I have stamps in there for countries that don't even exist anymore. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. I know. That's the artwork, yeah. So, of all the countries you've been to, and now you can talk about all 195, which is the one that surprised you the most?
2: Um, You know what? I had a really great time in South Sudan. Um By the way, Jessica, a- Jessica,
0: <laughs> no one has ever come on this show, ever, <laughs> and said how much fun they had in South Sudan, and I want to talk about that when when we get back. I, I, I need to hear that story. We're talking to Jessica Nabongo, the author of the Catch Me If You Can, One Woman's Journey to Every Country in the World. That book's coming out in June. You were just enlightening me with the fact that you had a terrific time in South Sudan. Please enlighten me more. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so um, a friend of a friend of a friend basically connected me with some locals in Juba, and they ended up being really kind and just taking me around and actually having experiences they didn't have in the past. So one thing I really wanted to do while in Juba was to go to a cattle camp because, you know, cattle are really important in Dinka culture. And so we spent like three hours in a cattle camp, and it was just, you know, learning how the people who live in the camp live, and just, you know, just being immersed in that culture, it was just really fascinating and, and just really enjoyable. And spending time on the Nile and in villages, it, I had a lot of fun.
0: Well, if you just followed the Nile, you would have gone through about 16 countries, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. So I got to yeah. ask the question that I asked you when you first came on the show a couple of months ago.
2: Why? Why? Why go to every country in the world? Um, my life is largely driven by my extreme curiosity. And I think for me, I've always, since I was very young, I've just been really curious um, about everything. And, and when it comes to travel, I'm just curious to see how people live in different parts of the world, but also just having conversations with people and seeing how people think about different ideas as well.
0: Okay, fair enough. But now I'm to ask you the other sort of like... <laughs> caricaturist travel question which is so many of my friends, and I I get angry at them for this, they'll come back from a trip and I said did you like it? No, I'm never going back never going back I said, what are you talking about? Right? (laughs) I mean, you know, one bad experience in Brooklyn means you're not going back so I guess did you have one of those experiences where you said, where you'll say, okay, 195 countries, they're like, this one not going to happen again. Anything like that?
2: There are two actually um and you know never say never obviously you know i visited one to two cities in these countries but belarus and moldova i was just like mm, if i never came back again i'd be just fine <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> and the reason and the reason being obviously belarus uh, their government leaves a little bit to be desired i think they're one of the last you know soviet dictatorships
2: Mm -hmm. yeah you know for me it was it was the people so so much of my view of the world and my travel is it's viewed through the lens of the people and i just found that people were quite closed and a bit cold and mm, somewhere a little bit racist and you know a lot of people will say well it's eastern europe and i'm like no we're not gonna generalize the region because i love serbia i love um uh, Croatia, like Macedonia, I had a great time here as well. So I've had really amazing adventures in Eastern Europe, but Moldova and Belarus just did not do it for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fine. <laughs> and, but and those, where really, the...
2: those truly are the only two.
0: All right, so let me flip it over now, do the other, fl- other side of this. What's the one country that you really weren't that interested in going to, but now you can't wait to go back to it?
2: Ooh, um, probably Uzbekistan. Interesting choice. Why? I was traveling at a pretty rapid pace, and I wasn't actually, like, Googling everywhere that I was going. And so, you know, I had basic knowledge, a lot of understanding of, like, economic and political situations, but not so much sites. And so I didn't know, like, Samarkand and Uzbekistan was so colorful, and I'm really drawn to colorful places. So I fell in love with that, and their textiles. Um, and it, the people were just so amazing. I We spent, like, five days there. I just had a wonderful time in the country and really can't wait to get back.
0: And the biggest surprise about
2: Uzbekistan? Um, I think, honestly, just... Uh, the people were just so joyful. Like we we had such an amazing time in the market in Tashkent and no one spoke English, but we had so much fun with everybody. Um just because everybody was like open and wanting to connect with us. So even though we all could connect verbally, there was like an energy exchange and we just had a really fun time with um different characters in the market.
0: Of course, I always tell people the best travel experiences I've ever had or when the plans didn't work, where you turn left mm-hmm. instead of turning right, and that's when you made a discovery of a lifetime. Give me an example of, of when, the pan, when Plan A didn't
1: work.
2: Oh, that's a good question. Well, a big one was Syria. Um, the time I was traveling to Syria, Americans weren't allowed entry, and uh, they denied me a visa on my Ugandan passport. And so what I ended up doing, literally, this was like last minute, the day, the night before I was traveling, I found out I wouldn't be able to go to like Damascus. So I ended up going to Golan Heights, which is an Israeli occupied territory of Syria. And it was such an interesting and beautiful experience. My thanks to Jessica, to Gary Left, and to Bob
0: Dotson, And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news around the globe, just log on to petergreenberg.com.
1: Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg,
0: you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.
2: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get
1: invented, they'll be on AutoTrader just you wait auto trader
0: hi this is Jill
3: Schlesinger CBS News business analyst certified financial planner and host of the money watch podcast this is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring it is a show that's all about you it's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com follow money Watch wherever you get your podcasts you can listen ad free on the amazon music or wondery app